0: Welcome to this week's episode. We continue to tech trend and ship to Bitcoin investigations. Nick Himonitis from the NGH Group returns to dig deeper into how these investigations work. There is a great deal of knowledge packed into this week's show, so listen up. This episode is brought to you by CrossTracks Case Management Software. CrossTracks now offers CTX Vision, a fully integrated video conferencing platform built into CrossTracks. The videos you host go directly into your video tab. Crosstracks also integrates with programs you already use like QuickBooks, Delph ScopeNow, Scope now, Investigation Video Editor, Word and more. The integrations combined with powerful features such as automated audio transcription and report generation help investigators generate revenue and improve efficiency. The system can be customized for any investigative specialty. Start your free trial today at crosstrax.co and use promo code PIP20. Now grab your calculator and take some notes. It's time to talk dollars and numbers. Let's drop in on Nick and our host, private investigator, Matt Spare.
1: And welcome everybody to the next episode of PI Perspectives. It's Matt Spare, your host. So today we are welcoming back a prior guest who was on one of our Quick Hits episodes, we had talked with Nick Heminitis a couple of weeks ago during the COVID lockdown. always wanted to have him on to talk about Bitcoin because he, he does a lot of Bitcoin investigations. So I thought this would be a good time as we're starting to ramp back up into the normal, hopefully, talking about Bitcoin and understanding that type of investigative work. So, uh, Nick, I want to welcome you back to the program. How are you doing?
2: I'm, I'm doing very well, thanks. And it's a pleasure to be back with you.
1: Right. So it's been a couple of weeks since we've talked, probably about a month or, or six weeks or so. What have you been up to on your end?
2: What I've not been up to. Uh, we've been very, very busy um, doing a lot of what I talked about last time, which is a lot of our normal work, but a tremendous overflow of computer security, cyber security work for folks who we don't normally do that kind of work for. But there's a tremendous ongoing demand for it out there, uh, in large part due to the COVID nineteen, right. you know, lockdowns and restrictions, even as. Things are starting to ease up and start to slide back to normal in the real world. I think a lot of folks have taken to this working remotely. And if it's worked for them or they're able to get by with it, uh, we'll probably be doing it for a good long time to come. So we're we're still doing a lot of work in that area.
1: Yeah. And, and that's basically what I've been getting from my clients. They're talking about opening up New York City. I think on Monday. Um, So, the day that this airs actually should be the day that uh, New York City opens back up. But, you know, they're going to have different policies and procedures in place, right? So, not coming back full time, maybe coming in a couple days a week, rotating the staff, having staff come in later, uh, you know, doing like an 11 to 7 as opposed to a 9 to 5 so they don't have to travel during rush hour, just being creative with it. But I think you're right. I think there's going to be a big push for people to you know, do as much as they can from home and maybe just come into their offices, you know, maybe three days a week and, and work at home two days or, or vice versa. So there's definitely a push for that. So you've, you've seen a lot of this um, at-home network security setups and stuff, Then that's a lot of the work you've been doing.
2: We, we have uh, uh, everything from, you know, just the, the, the folks being smart and proactive and saying, hey, you know, I used to work from home a little bit. Now I'm working from home all day every day uh, i need to up my security game and they need some help in doing that right. To unfortunately you know a lot of the you know the horror stories of you know people getting uh, hacked people having uh problems phishing attacks have been uh, very much on the rise yeah, definitely. Uh, and uh, uh unfortunately a lot of people falling victim to them
1: yeah i mean i, I i've seen an uptick of uh strange emails that I've been getting on on my own and, and they're, they're trying to come in all different ways, different angles. So a lot of bad actors out there, right? that's what we were talking about last time. Uh,
2: uh, Tremendous. And, and they are, they are really uh, ramping up, uh, to, I think, try and take advantage of the, uh, the dispersion of the workforce, you know, and, the, the fact that uh, a company with 200 people uh, now, you know, 195 of those people are not in the same place at the same time. And, the, you know, the bad actors are they're very crafty and they, you know, they come up with uh, creative ways to take advantage of that.
1: Right. Right. So what kind of fires have you been seeing in the last couple of weeks? Like what, are, what have been the big uh, red flags and big alarms that have gone off?
2: Well, a lot of them relate directly to what i was just saying people falling victim to uh well crafted and sometimes not so well crafted phishing attacks many where the email a person receives on its face says it came from someone at their company right. uh so, someone whose name they you know that you know the senior vice president of Uh, marketing or the head of the accounting department. Uh, But of course it really didn't. And if they looked carefully and hovered their mouse over the from address, they would see that's not where it really came from, but they don't, they're working quickly and doing what they're doing. And the next thing you know, they're following the instructions in the email or clicking on the link that the email tells them to click on. Right. And they've got a major problem on their hands and they freak out. And among other things, they call us and ask for help.
1: Okay. And I know we were talking about um, just offline before we got in about uh, a lot of the security related issues that are going on here in New York. This, you know, as we're uh, recording, this there has been uh, tons of protesting. Uh, yesterday wasn't quite as bad as the day before, but uh yeah, there's been some real uh, craziness going on um, all over the place. It seems like everybody's forgot about COVID nineteen and they're just uh, out and about in the streets.
2: It is crazy. Yeah. I fortunately have only seen it on the news.
0: Right.
2: Uh, although uh, there was a couple of protests uh, not five miles uh, from where I live right. uh, yesterday, and uh, I know that there was a, a pretty significant police response. And you know, it's it's a scary thing.
1: Yeah, it's a balance of you know people uh, are out there for you know with their constitutional rights to do so, and then there's those that are just not behaving. So it's it's crazy. So have you seen on on your in your workflow any um, security related issues to um, to the protesting or anything uh, related to that going on?
2: We have uh, not a lot. We we've done some work for a few select clients who wanted us to track social media traffic that might relate to uh, um, protests or uh, potential rioting or or damaging uh, activity, you know, that might happen uh, where they're specifically located. Um, But just a handful of those.
1: Right. I know my, uh, my, my citizen app notifications has been going off like crazy. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, just nonstop. There's there's all this stuff going on. So uh interesting times, man. Twenty twenty has uh <laughs> has been a very interesting animal. It uh,
2: has. And I don't I don't know if anyone who's being honest could say that twenty twenty has gone the way they expected so sure,
1: far. Sure. Yeah, I've seen the uh, the funny memes about the uh, the astronauts, right, uh, being smart enough to get off the planet, <laughs> the right, while it's falling apart. But uh, what are you going to do? Okay, so we're going to talk here today about uh, Bitcoin. That's that's uh, the, the reason that we uh, wanted to do it. You gave a great presentation to the uh, Society of Professional Investigators. I th- Thank yeah, you. I guess it was last year, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, and uh, just a great, great in-depth presentation. Uh, somebody who who. Who actually was able to explain it? I think in layman's terms, where um, you know you can get some sense of what it's about, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna jump into that. But before we do, tell me a little bit about how you got into doing that type of work, and was there any kind of training or certifications or things that you needed to to um, pass to consider yourself an expert in that particular area?
2: Uh, sure. The way I got into it is scarily similar to the way I got into doing computer forensics in general in the first place.
1: Okay.
2: I have been uh, I've been in the private investigation uh and uh legal financial fraud litigation space for going on 30 years. And years ago probably at this point I don't know 15 16 or more years ago. Um <clears throat> folks started coming to us in connection with financial investigations that we were doing or beginning to do for them right. and literally walking in the office and plopping down what we used to call a tower, right? Computer tower,
1: right.
2: Uh, desktop computer uh, in the office and saying, well, you you told me to bring anything and everything I had that, you know, might relate to this financial investigation. Here you go.
1: Right.
2: Uh, and from that need, we began to study myself, my staff, uh, you know, take courses and learn to do computer forensics. And we went out and over the years, you know, we took classes. I literally went back to college to take uh, courses in computer forensics and went on to get uh, certifications uh, in computer forensics and have done lots of work uh, for the last 15, 16, 17 years in that area. Right. Something very similar happened with this unique little niche of cryptocurrency and blockchain forensics, I call it. Right. Uh, just a, you know, just a few years ago, maybe it's two, three years now. Um, we continued, of course, over the years to do a lot of uh, financial investigation work. and a lot of that involved computer forensics. And all of a sudden, a little at a time, one case here, two cases there, the issue of Bitcoin and occasionally some other cryptocurrencies started creeping into those cases. And either a forensic accountant or someone else we were working with brought it to our attention, or we came across it ourselves and we're like, huh, what is this?
1: Right, how does this work? Oh, yeah.
2: there's, There's something here that indicates this guy has bitcoin well we know what that is but we weren't experts uh, in it or, or or certainly not experts in the forensic aspect of it at that time right. and we pretty quickly realized that this is going to be the next big thing i'm not talking about the big picture of bitcoin economically it had already really really become a thing right. but we very quickly started to realize this is where it's going to go um in terms of uh people doing shady financial transactions right, right, people yeah, looking so... to yeah people looking to hide assets people right. looking to do anonymous transactions etc The more we looked at this, the more we realized this is it. This is a game changer. And this is where all that kind of activity is going to wind up going. And we better, you know, up our game. And at that point, we started studying up on it. We, you know, try to read everything that was available about cryptocurrency investigations and how to do it. And then uh, uh, some certification uh, avenues did. Uh, come around, and uh, I myself went and uh, took a, took a course, uh, a rather lengthy course, and actually did get a certification as a certified cryptocurrency forensic investigator.
1: Right, right.
2: And that was that was a little over
1: a year ago. Okay, all right. Um, well, this is a good point actually to jump out and uh, we'll uh, leave a cliffhanger here because we're going to dive into all these fun fraudulent activities and the way this stuff is. Uh, is used when we, uh, when we come back. So everybody sit tight. We're going to uh, step out for our sponsors and we'll be right back.
0: This episode is sponsored by DelvePoint. Point. Delft Point was founded by investigators with more than 70 years of combined service in the industry. From missing persons cases and custody disputes to insurance investigations and criminal cases, DelvePoint's Point's billions of records from all three credit bureaus allows you to develop a complete profile of your subject. Now make sure you check out Matt's quick hit segment with Nikki mckinnell Marlar for some great free resources. Hey, are you ready for the future of networking and learning for private investigators? Imagine an online community with a vast amount of training and resource material. What if we told you some of the best content and technology providers will give you discounts and benefits for signing up? Get ready for the investigators-toolbox.com. Coming online this month, learn more at investigators-toolbox.com.
1: And welcome back, everybody, to PI Perspectives. Um, This is Matt Sperry, your host. I am joined here uh, with Nick Hemonitis. Nick, welcome back to the program.
2: Glad to be back.
1: (laughs) All right, good. So when we left off before, you kind of laid the foundation of how you uh, got into doing uh, Bitcoin investigations and... um, I guess the uh, the studying and, um, and the certifications and, and all that. So um, wh- what type of client like typically do you find needs this type of work done and, and how do you start doing it?
2: I don't know that there's a typical client or case, but I'll give some examples of the things we've done for clients in different contexts. One area where we've done quite a bit of work with these investigations is the matrimonial area. Um, As uh, I'm sure most investigators are aware, uh, matrimonial litigation, at least between parties with substantial assets, is very much today about where's the money, where did it go, what did people spend? What did they spend it on? Can we find the money? Can we get it back? Et cetera, et cetera. And all, all these kinds of issues. Right. That's that's not new. What's new is the element of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general into that equation. We've had many cases where uh Clients or their attorneys have come to us and said, we think the other spouse has been engaged in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency transactions or investments. We don't know where to start looking for it. We haven't encountered this before. What do we do? Right. That's that's one context. In another context, still in the matrimonial area, we get people contacting us and saying, hey we just got the other spouse's sworn statement of net worth and they've listed some Bitcoin on here and admitted that they have X bitcoins. Right. How do we know that's all they have? How do we investigate to see if that's all they have, keep them honest. And if my client, I'm, I'm speaking as the, the lawyer, contact me now. If my client wants to take half those Bitcoins instead of the dollar value of them, right? how do we do that? Because they literally don't even understand mechanically how to do that. Yeah, that's that's, gonna, that's one context.
1: A whole pro- process of uh, transferring, if, if you can even yeah, do that. It, right? it, it's, 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 it's actually
2: very simple and very easy if you know how to do it. And a lot of people don't, so that's why they're calling us. Um, Where it really gets interesting is when they call and they say, "Okay, uh, the other party has listed on their statement that worth that they have twenty Bitcoin." Okay, just for reference, as of today, one Bitcoin is worth about ninety six hundred dollars nine thousand six hundred dollars as of today. And understand that the value fluctuates wildly.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, just you know, a, a month ago, it was $6,500. In December 2017, it was almost $20,000 per Bitcoin. It's very volatile. But right. they're calling, and they say, so they admit they have 20 Bitcoin. And then we get into this cat and mouse game where we say, okay, let's play. Tell, let's set up a Bitcoin address and wallet, and I'll talk about that after, for your client to receive half of those Bitcoin. And we do. And then the other party transfers 10 Bitcoin to our client. Seems simple enough.
1: Right.
2: Now, if they wired half of whatever money they had in a particular account, um, you could try and trace those funds. Here, you could do the same thing, but it's a completely different set of how do you do that? Uh, and most forensic accountants and uh, and attorneys don't know how to do that, and that's why they're calling us right. to trace and see. All right, the ten Bitcoin that was just sent to my client, where did they come from? Uh, can we trace that back any further? How you know how much? other Bitcoin might we be able to discover that this party has that they didn't tell us about. And and that's one whole area that we get involved with. Another area is uh, the ransomware victims. Now, we get a lot of calls from clients who've been ransomware. And I'm sure most people are familiar with what that is. Hackers infiltrate your system. They don't actually steal your data. They encrypt it. And then they send you a message that says, hi, we've encrypted all of your data. And you know that it's it's a legitimate message because you can't access your data anymore. You know it's been encrypted. Right. Um, and then they offer to provide you with the decryption key for two Bitcoin or whatever, $10,000 worth of Bitcoin or whatever the case may be. Some clients want to pay the ransom because they've done the math and they know that the risk of not getting their data back or the cost and time factor to try and get their data back without paying the ransom if they don't have good backups is many, many, many times more than the ransom that's being asked. And the folks who who perpetrate these ransomware attacks absolutely know that. Right. They're very smart, and they always keep the ransom amount at a price point where it probably makes sense for most victims to pay it.
1: Right.
2: Well, number one, a lot of clients who are in that position and decide they're going to pay the ransom, number one, don't have any Bitcoin and don't know how to get any quickly. Number two, they don't know how to go about making the payment and keeping the other party, the ransomware hacker, honest. In other words, in this transaction. So we get involved in helping to facilitate that kind of thing. Now, the step beyond that is, which follows logically, and I'm sure is burning on every investigator's mind, right, right, right. They pay the ransom. But then how do we go find the perpetrators and track them down? that unfortunately is beyond difficult and and most ransomware victim clients who get to this point with this do ask us can you track these people down even after we pay the ransom you know so that we could uh, file a criminal complaint or, or sue them or you know whatever the case may be and and the answer is we can try but it's a losing proposition uh, yeah. and the chances are very good that we are not going to be able to ultimately identify them. Right. The reason for that is because the Bitcoin ecosystem was designed to be anonymous. It's not fully and completely anonymous at this stage of the game. It's pseudo anonymous, but it was designed to be anonymous right. for everyone, even a casual user.
1: Right.
2: And these guys or whoever these uh, perpetrators are professionals. They do this every day. So they're taking 10 extra steps on top of the built-in anonymity of the Bitcoin ecosystem, which is called the blockchain, uh, you know, to stay anonymous. Right. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're definitely ahead of the game they're career criminals. They're going to know what they're doing. (laughs) So that's pretty obvious. You know, I would think uh, probably another area and correct me if I'm wrong is uh, surrogate's work, Right. So you have uh, people that have have Bitcoin that pass away, um, and then you've got the the next of kin trying to uh, you know um, probate the estate um, where they come across as Bitcoin. Like, I don't know what this is, or, or, or how do we figure this out? Right. The, you-
2: we we have had a couple of cases like that, and unfortunately, the answer we have to give those people is all right. We, ha- we are going to help you try and, number one, confirm the Bitcoin holdings at the addresses in question or whatever, but to get it, to actually access it and have the ability to transact it, spend it, transfer it, whatever you want to do, requires something called the private key. And right. I'll, I'll explain that. Yeah. But without it, there's no one to go to. It's not like you can go to the bank with a court order and say, this court order says I'm now authorized to withdraw this money. There's no one to go to with a court order or letters of administration or any other type of legal process because there is no central repository. There is no central regulatory figure or body. Or person or group running this. It's an autonomous, organic ecosystem right. that was created and launched back in two thousand eight slash two thousand nine, and has literally taken on a life of its own. and And that's what its founders I- intended right. uh, to really attempt to disrupt the the traditional banking and financial system by creating a virtual currency that didn't rely on any central bank, uh, wasn't regulated by any government or government agency or anything like that. And then they largely succeeded.
1: Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty amazing how it, uh, how it took off. So, um, yeah, w- one of the things that, that fascinated me about your presentation, to spy was that whole, um, key, and, you know, having an actual hard copy of that key, uh, and, and like printed on that, I think you said like a metal plate or something like that, where, yep. you know, making sure that you have that yeah, somewhere, yes. right. Have it like in a safe deposit box or, or something like that. So God forbid something happens to you. Um, yeah, I, I remember you t- you told one horror story of, uh, somebody who had passed away and, and they, they just couldn't recover any of the money. I'm sure it happens a lot. It's, uh, it's pretty scary. And, and-
2: it is scary and and it is very true bitcoin is very much a bearer instrument like a you know bearer bonds of old right. it doesn't have any physical existence on its own but it's it's a bearer instrument to the extent that if you have the private key that corresponds to an address on the bitcoin blockchain where there is some amount of Bitcoin located, right? right? Let's say a million dollars. There's a million dollars worth of Bitcoin located at XYZ address on the Bitcoin blockchain. Anyone who has the private key that corresponds to that address can transfer those Bitcoin. So whether it's legitimately yours And you have the private key or whether the private key was stolen from you, hackers got their hands on it or accidentally, you know, fell into the wrong hands through negligence or whatever. Anyone who comes into possession of that private key could immediately steal or transfer those Bitcoin that are located at that address. There's no one checking ID. There's no one asking you for Social Security numbers or any other forms of uh, authority or documentation. You got the private key; those Bitcoin are yours.
1: Right.
2: And the reverse is also very true. If you lose those private, if you lose the private key to the address where your Bitcoin is parked, you have a million dollars of Bitcoin parked at an address on the blockchain. You have the private key. Let's forget about someone, uh, you getting hacked and they steal the private key. Because if they do, they're going to steal your Bitcoin within moments. And then the Bitcoin's gone. It's going to move elsewhere on the blockchain as directed by them because they had the private key. But let's just assume you lost the private key. You weren't careful about how you were storing it or backing up. You lost it. The Bitcoin at the address in question, that million dollars worth of Bitcoin parked at that address is going to stay there forever, unless you find that private key. And if it's really gone, like you lost it, lost it. Um, You had it on paper, let's say, and the piece of paper was destroyed. You had it in a wallet, a digital wallet, computer program. Uh, called a wallet, where you keep track of your Bitcoin addresses and private keys, and you had it on a laptop computer, and you had no backups of that laptop computer, and that laptop computer completely crashed, the hard drives fried, you can't get that wallet back and, it, and the private keys that were in it back. That Bitcoin, that million dollars worth of Bitcoin is stuck and frozen forever, Cause there is no one to go to and say, well, I lost my private key. Right. Can you give me a new one? It doesn't work that way.
1: It becomes a, uh, a very valuable laptop, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and from an investigative standpoint, and that's, I, I think what you're remembering from uh, the presentation I gave it to society, of professional investigators, that's something, that concept is something we can use and leverage because consequences and risks of loss drives conduct right um so any any savvy person that has a significant uh value in cryptocurrency bitcoin or otherwise who is not using a brokerage um i should stop at this moment and 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 kind of say that there's one bitcoin blockchain Technically, there's one Bitcoin ecosystem. For all purposes, though, practically, there's really two. And and, and those two are the legit, totally uh, open and honest users of Bitcoin who have no nefarious purposes in mind. They just want to invest in it, right. or they just want to play around financially in it, right. or they want to use it legitimately to make some financial transactions. Most of those folks, the vast majority of those folks, are not going to be dealing what we call peer-to-peer directly themselves to some other anonymous party through the blockchain. You can certainly do that. but most people who have no nefarious purpose whatsoever they're not even interested in hiding their bitcoin transactions from the irs they'll pay taxes if they're due etc those folks we call them the coinbase crew okay coinbase is the largest uh cryptocurrency brokerage in the united states Uh, there are quite a number of other ones but coinbase is the big player on the block and we we just use the phrase the Coinbase crew because that really describes all the people who have no nefarious intent whatsoever.
1: So let me ask you they a question: go, Do do people um, day trade uh, Bitcoin? Or, absolutely, or no? positively. Wow, that's crazy.
2: And and many of those people who day trade don't have any technical sophistication. And literally, if you put a gun to their head, could not explain to you from a technical point of view how Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency actually works. Enter an entity like Coinbase, which is a brokerage, just like, uh, you know, Morgan Stanley or uh, Goldman Sachs. You call Coinbase or you go online and access your account and you direct them to buy you $50,000 worth of Bitcoin or sell uh, $25,000 worth of your Ethereum or your Bitcoin Cash, which is another cryptocurrency right. uh, that's spun off of Bitcoin, et cetera. And, and you buy and trade them through a brokerage like Coinbase, just like you would be buying and trading stocks,
1: right? Okay, or commodities. So, so we have the uh, the, the Coinbase crew, right? The, the people that right. are that are legit. So, w- w- what's the other area? <laughs> what do you call them?
2: Okay, well, the, the, that's the that's the everyone else. Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and the everyone else who has any kind of nefarious motive, and it could be as simple as, hey, if I make fifty thousand dollars through my Bitcoin transactions, I don't want to pay the IRS. Okay. Obviously we all know that's criminal. Right. Um, we don't condone that. that. Pay your
1: taxes everyone.
2: Right. <laughs> that, that may be that may be the only nefarious, unlawful purpose a person has for not dealing with Coinbase or any other brokerage which does keep records and does report to the IRS and is subject to being subpoenaed if you're in a litigation, for example. Right. Um, you know, they're just like a bank. They Coinbase and all the other American, U.S.-based cryptocurrency brokerages, they have uh, know-your-customer and anti-money laundering uh, obligations, and by and large, they, they comply with them.
1: They just don't have um, your key, right? <laughs> if you lose it, they, want, they don't have it. <laughs>
2: uh, correct. Correct. <laughs> okay. uh, well, you see, that's the thing. If you're dealing with them, they're managing an account for you. You don't even really have to keep track of private keys or anything else because you're literally just directing them, you know, to make buys and sells for you right. and to put, you know, so you don't have to worry about any of that. Um, I mean, you have to worry about them getting hacked because that's that's a whole other story. And there have been a number of well-publicized situations over the years where cryptocurrency brokerages have been hacked and people have lost millions of dollars uh, the, the most famous was one uh, called uh, Mount Gox mt the abbreviation for mountain gox they they were not based in the us uh, at, at the time they were the leading bitcoin brokerage in the world and they got hacked and i put hacked in quotes cuz to this day some people say it was an inside job but overnight uh, you know, $450 million or something. And Bitcoin wasn't worth nearly back then what it is now. Uh, $450 million worth of Bitcoin disappeared like overnight. And a lot of people lost their shirts. But wow. um, so the, the other group is the everyone else. And, and those are the folks who are dealing peer to peer. Okay. And the key here is this. If you're, if you're buying and selling cryptocurrencies through a brokerage, That's cute, okay? And economically, it's maybe different from other commodities and stocks and things, but on a practical level, from a financial investigation point of view, it's really no different than anything else because there's an entity you can go to and get all the trading records and the financial records and the account records and and all this kind of stuff. Um, When this really becomes fundamentally different from any other kind of financial transactions uh, myself or any other financial investigators I've ever had to deal with before is when folks decide I'm going to do this all on my own. I'm going to sit down on my computer. I'm going to download a piece of software. Bitcoin core is one of the most popular uh, digital wallets in the world. Um, I'm going to download Bitcoin core. I'm going to generate some addresses and private keys that go along with them using the software and i'm going to go and procure some bitcoin for myself directly from some other individual and that's a peer-to-peer transaction and i'm going to give you some examples of how folks do that because, you know, I've, I've had a lot of savvy financial investigators say to me, well, yeah, this is all theoretical because, you know, there has to be that exchange with fiat uh, where, you know, the party has to wire or transfer money somewhere to get a brokerage to give them the million dollars worth of Bitcoin. No, they don't. Um, there's an entire Bitcoin black market. Right. So I download and start running Bitcoin Core. I set up a digital wallet for myself on my computer. And then I go on the dark web and I go to any number of sites on the dark web where I can arrange to purchase Bitcoin or sell Bitcoin. In this case, purchase Bitcoin peer to peer at a premium, of course, because the person selling you to Bitcoin knows, especially if you're going to pay cash as in green paper money right. for the bitcoin um but this happens every day and i mean it happens way more than people uh in the uh, you know uh in the mainstream space give it credit for uh, i know it happens i've been involved in cases where we don't we not only know it has happened we've seen it happen and tracked it happening um, somebody takes a hundred thousand dollars, you know, in a bag and goes to Starbucks and sits down with a person and says, I got the cash right here. And the other party says, okay. And the other party transfers them. What in effect is 85 or $88,000 worth of Bitcoin. Cause there's a heavy premium on this kind sure. of transaction. Yep. You just exchanged $100,000 cash green paper money, which takes up space. It's very suspicious, right? To carry around. You can get in trouble going to an airport with it. Uh, If the cops find you with $100,000 cash, there's a million questions you (laughs) can ask. You're looking for the cocaine.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
2: (laughs) Uh, And and all those things that go along with that, including where you're going to hide it that your spouse or whoever you're trying to hide it from, isn't going to find it, et cetera. And then, Hey, what if I have to go on the run? And uh, I'm not trying to be funny here. You know, people who are doing this kind of stuff think this way. If I have to go on the run, you know, a hundred thousand cash. Okay. Maybe not so hard to to run with, but what about a million? What about 5 million? Not so easy to physically. I got to get out of town or get out of the country with.
0: Right.
2: Well, If I engaged in one or a series of black market peer-to-peer Bitcoin transactions and amassed through that series of transactions, $5 million worth of Bitcoin, okay? I have, or I can have now, I can take something called a hardware wallet. It's the size of a USB stick. I can stick that into my computer, and it is on that device where I store my addresses and private keys, which is all I need to control that $5 million worth of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So if I have the addresses and keys for that 5 million worth of Bitcoin on that USB stick, I can wipe that computer that I was using clean and I can leave it behind and I can put that USB stick size device in my pocket or in the lining of my suitcase or, you know, wherever else I want. And I can literally go anywhere in the world yeah. and anywhere I go in the world, doesn't matter what currency they use in that country or anything else. All I have to do is get to a computer and I have control of $5 million worth of Bitcoin.
1: Congratulations! I, you just laundered five million bucks,
2: I, I mean, <laughs> or, or four point eight seven five. <laughs> and and that's, after the the part, that's the part of this that is fundamentally different. Yeah. you know, and and aside from the aside from the hey, I can run with this physically part, um, I could do, I could take that five million dollars in Bitcoin that I've amassed through whatever series of transactions, and if I wanted to or needed to. I can I mean remember not only am I holding this 5 million dollars completely anonymously right I can transfer it to anyone in the world anywhere in the world free of any never mind transaction fees like banks charge you for for wires and all this other stuff but I can transfer this to anyone in the world free of any third party interference no one can stop the transaction. There's no when you when you try to wire five million dollars through your bank, even if you're a good well-known customer of your bank, they're going to ask you a lot of questions, sure. especially if you're trying to wire that five million dollars to some person or entity the bank is not familiar with in Uzbekistan yeah, or of course, of course. wherever yeah. some so, you know some foreign country. Um, none of that applies with Bitcoin. I plug my hardware wallet into a computer that has wild software on it and click, click, click. And in usually, at most nine to 10 minutes, usually in just a couple of minutes, I have transferred $5 million to someone on the other side of the world for virtually almost nothing like no fees involved. Uh, there are some very, very nominal transaction fees that, that happen on the blockchain, but uh, they're de minimis and not even worth talking about. Right. And, and and like I said, more importantly, free of any potential interference or questions being asked by any bank or government because there's no one to ask those questions. Right. It's it's a completely independent outside the realm of traditional financial system currency
1: so and, you're and saying like like a lot of this stuff it's it's a losing battle trying to to identify and stay on top of this stuff right uh, as well, far as like it, an investigator goes right it difficult.
2: is it is and it's not right so look th- there are over 3,000 cryptocurrencies currently operating out there most of them no one's ever heard of. Uh, but even if we just talk about say the top 100, uh, Bitcoin has a market cap of 177 billion dollars, okay? Um, and anywhere from 25 to 40 billion dollars of Bitcoin changes hands every day. right That's the trading volume. It's huge. It dwarfs all other cryptocurrencies by a huge margin okay um in fact i think that the rest of the top 10 added up together don't even come close to bitcoin so because bitcoin is so dominant in the space a tremendous amount of time effort and money have been spent on exactly what you just said figuring out ways to track this stuff, conduct forensic investigations into these transactions, and very importantly de-anonymizing the the addresses on the blockchain and and the individuals behind the transactions and and it's it's complicated, but it it can be done. and in fact, there are a, a couple of uh, well there's more than a couple, but the, there are a couple of really big um uh, expensive subscription type software database services and we're, we're all familiar with you know tlo and, and tracers right. and all these yep. investigative databases uh some of some of which are phenomenal um and these days you know some you know integrate various you know uh quote, software features through their services. Well, there's a couple. One is called Elliptic, E-L-L-I-P-T-I-C. And the other one is a product called uh, Reactor uh, made by a company here in the U.S. called Chainalysis. And they are very, very expensive, like $100,000 a year expensive. Um, But they have put millions of dollars into doing with the bitcoin blockchain what companies like tlo and tracers have done with public records right Right. going out grabbing the public blockchain because the entire bitcoin blockchain is publicly available you could download it tomorrow assuming you had the computing power and the space because it's big but it's public so you download the whole blockchain, and then if you put enough, you know, really smart people and enough computing power behind doing, you know, uh, analysis and what they call clustering to try and group addresses and transactions and make heads or tails over, well, it looks like these addresses here seem to all be controlled by the same person based on the uh, the way the transactions line up, et cetera, et cetera and then doing a lot of what we're very familiar with, which is OSINT research, right? Uh, Open source intelligence Mm -hmm. to try and match up at least one address in that cluster to a person or an entity and thereby presumptively identify the person who's controlling this group of addresses. And just to give you one really super simple example of that, because uh, a lot of people say, well, I don't understand. How would you do OSINT research like on a Bitcoin address? Well, Bitcoin addresses are are, are, are not user-friendly, okay? Um, they're big, long, alphanumeric codes, um, <clears throat> the, the Bitcoin public addresses. But the key about the public address, unlike a private key, is people do, by necessity, share them and publish them. If you want someone to send money to you at your Bitcoin address, you have to give them your Bitcoin address. The ransomware hackers, when they send you the ransom demand, they give you the Bitcoin address they want you to send the Bitcoin to, right in the email they send you. Um, So that Bitcoin address is going to appear in various places, not just on the blockchain, but in open source research. Um, another great example is just for example, uh, uh WikiLeaks, right. Uh, at some point, uh, the government cracked down on PayPal, which was uh, WikiLeaks primary source of funding for a while. That's how people were making their donations to WikiLeaks, through right. PayPal. Right. Uh, and the government said, yeah, no, the next dollar you give to WikiLeaks, you know, we're shutting you down PayPal. So PayPal immediately ceased, uh, Processing transactions. So what did WikiLeaks do? Literally the next day, they published a Bitcoin address, you know, with an ant on the internet and said, uh, we are WikiLeaks, and if you want to donate to us, never mind PayPal or anything else, just send Bitcoin to this address. Okay. That address and others they've subsequently published are now attributed, right? We know whose that is. Right. Because you can identify, yep they published it. Yep. So we can take that address and if we've got a cluster of 172 other addresses which we know from analysis are all connected to the point where we believe they're all owned and controlled by the same person or entity, but we didn't know who it was, and now we just attributed one address in that cluster to WikiLeaks, well, now we think we've got 172 addresses on the blockchain that belong to WikiLeaks and we throw that in the database. And that's right. what these big, expensive tools and services do. And they've done a phenomenal job of it. Right. Uh, right. Uh, unfortunately for many of us, myself included, they're only, uh, they only sell uh, just like some of the databases did back in the day. They only uh, provide that service to uh, law enforcement, to financial institutions, And to companies that are actually in the cryptocurrency space, like, for example, Coinbase or other cryptocurrency brokerages that need to do uh, know your customer and anti money laundering stuff by regulation. Sure, sure. All
1: right. Well, this was a a big, uh, (laughs) big chunk to swallow here. And, you know, we didn't even get into the basics of Bitcoin. And I, I did that on purpose, actually, because I, I feel like you know, we, we've gotten that from many places. Uh, Bitcoin's been around long enough. Folks should really kind of understand what it's about. So this was like, uh, this is a Bitcoin 102, not 101. <laughs> so we're moving forward here. If you're an investigator, right? and you So this comes across your desk uh, with work. Someone's soliciting you to do investigative work that involves Bitcoin. And you're completely like out of your, your realm here. Like, how would you start you know where where would you like who would you contact or you know obviously contact you if they need help but um how would they get started in actually doing the investigative work
2: well there's there are a number of really good uh, books that have been written about uh cryptocurrency investigation etc in in my opinion uh, the standout among them uh, is a book by a fellow named nick for f-u-r-n-e-a-u-x he's over in the uk uh, i've actually heard him lecture and i've read his book many many times and it sits on my shelf as a primary reference tool right if you want to really understand cryptocurrencies and blockchains from a technical point of view and start to understand actually doing like computer forensic level forensic analysis of cryptocurrency transactions and blockchains, um, that is absolutely the best reference I can offer. Um, you've got to read that book before you go anywhere else. Right. And if you, you know, if your brain hasn't fried by the time you finish reading that book, then you're probably ready to continue down the path of, you know, wanted to learn more about that stuff. But that's, that's one fantastic resource for, for those who don't want to maybe cook their brain to that level. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when you get into the technology behind how this stuff works, which you kind of need to understand if you're going to do deep forensics on this stuff, it it gets very complex very quickly, but there's a lot that you can do. I think as an investigator without getting into it on that level, um, there are, uh, uh, blockchain explorers, for example, um, some very, very good ones, Uh, um, blockchain.info, for example, uh, O X T dot N E. These are, remember I said the blockchain is public.
1: Right. You
2: don't necessarily need to download the blockchain, which is basically a giant, very complex spreadsheet, like 256 gigabytes in size. It's a lot of math. Um, Way too much math it would take, for me. It would, take you, it would take you days and days just to download it. Way Never, too much nevertheless, math. try and open it and, and, and interpret any of it. Right. Um, But there are blockchain explorers. You can literally go to them if you have an address. If you're you Google. you can do things as simple as Google uh, sample Bitcoin address or what does a Bitcoin address look like, right? Uh, I can't show them to people because we're doing a podcast, but they're long uh, and they're alphanumeric. And you can see what they look like on Google. And... If your client comes to you and says, "I found this paper in the drawer or I found this printed uh, little coupon looking thing and it has this number, you you know can recognize that that's probably a Bitcoin address right. um, And if it is, you can literally go to a blockchain Explorer and plug that in. And you know that's not going to do a forensic analysis for you, but you can do a lot. You can find out. You can find out. Uh, is there any Bitcoin currently at that address? When was the first time that address appeared on the Bitcoin blockchain? How many transactions have gone in and out of that address? When was the last one? All of that information is public, and it's available just by going to a blockchain explorer.
1: Right.
2: And then you can uh, you can download a, a free tool. For example, like uh, Numisight, N-U-M-I-S-I-G-T, which will basically, it's a free little software tool where you can plug in a Bitcoin address. It will pull down from a blockchain explorer um, built in everything I was just saying in terms of the history of that address and all the information that's available from the blockchain about that address. Right. And then you can click on some other tabs and it'll give you some little charts and graphs showing you, you know, the, the funds or the, the cryptocurrency that flowed into that address and out of that address and what addresses it came from and what addresses it went to, et cetera. Uh, and those are things that, you know, uh, you can do without a lot of, uh, you know, forensic training and expertise.
1: Okay. So we're going to uh, wind down here. Um, and I thank you for this. It was very in-depth. Um, so, Nick, if, if somebody sure. wants to get a hold of you, they've got more questions or they want to know more about this stuff or they just really love math. Um, <laughs> how do they get a hold of you? Um,
2: um, I'm at the NGH group in Melville um, all the time. <laughs> Uh and uh, uh our number is five one six six two one six five hundred. Uh or they can email me, of course. Uh my email is N H I M O N I D I S at the N G H Group
1: Okay, perfect. And we're gonna put that information in the show notes along with the um those websites that you had uh, suggested earlier, we're going to throw those up there too. So, Hey man, thank you so much for coming back uh, on, on short notice here. And, um, always a
2: pleasure yeah, to talk with
1: you, Matt. Yeah, it's good stuff, man. I appreciate it. And, um, you, you definitely, I mean, you're the guy when, when it comes to this When when somebody asked me like, who do I know that knows this stuff? I'm like, please call Nick. I, I hate math. <laughs> so, and we certainly appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's good. It's all good. So thanks everybody for tuning in and uh, we'll catch you guys next week on the next show. Have a good day.
0: Wow, that was a lot of content. I'll have to listen to that one again. Nick really knows how to keep this stuff interesting. Make sure you reach out to him if you need help with these types of cases. And watch out for some great content from Nick coming to the Investigators Toolbox website in the near future. We also want to make sure to thank Crosstracks, Delft Point, and the Investigators-Toolbox.com for sponsoring the show. Please, folks, check out their websites and consider using their services. Make sure you use code PIP20 for additional savings. Next week, we welcome the American PI, Paul Jabe. Paul gives us an update on his new business coaching project. Please be sure to give us a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share the show with your friends. Have a great week. Stay safe. And thanks for tuning into PI Perspectives.